Well, cool. We are in this season of um, preparing. You know, two weeks from now will be our fourth anniversary celebration, August 28th. It'll be a big party for us. We'll celebrate God's faithfulness. We'll honor some of our volunteers. And we'll just kind of set the tone for um, preaching through some of our values in September. But then October, November, we're going to be looking very... uh, in high detail at the book of Hebrews. And you can't read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament without falling in love with Jesus. And that actually is one of our values. We want to fall in love with him more. But before that, in this kind of I need season, we are preparing our hearts, saying, Lord, prepare us for what you want to do in Hebrews. And so the way I want to start us today is by telling you about um, the page turner of a book that I read during my sabbatical. Because it actually is about a hero, someone who's become a hero of mine. And please forgive me, I think some of you may start to have military fatigue, no pun intended, but I just keep kind of bringing up these military heroes, but this guy just really stole the cake for me. So if we have his picture up there, this is Colonel George Bud Day. He's still living. He's one of the few living Medal of Honors recipients. I mentioned last week this guy named Jared Monty, the Army Sergeant who died, and he received the Medal of Honor like most people do posthumously. That is, they usually receive it after they've given their life and service for their country. Well, Colonel Bud Day certainly gave his life and service for his country. He's still alive. He's in Florida. And let's see, I'm trying to think. Uh, this guy just cut from a different cloth, and so maybe I'll just kind of go chronologically. He enlisted right at the end of World War II as a Marine. He went to Hawaii, didn't see action because the war stopped. After that time, he kind of transitioned to the Army, and the Army Air Service was getting born, which then would become the Air Force. And uh, Bud Day, you know, just son of, um, you know, he came from, uh, as is often the case in these kind of stories, just not much means. I believe he's from North Dakota. And um, having enlisted in the Marines, then World War II ended, he was able to take advantage of the GI Bill, puts himself through law school, and uh, you know, a total first for his family. And um, as the Air Force is, is being born, he's right along with the whole development of the Air Force. And um, so uh, he sees action in Korea and um, is uh, staying in the game. And, you know, the, the, the usual struggle for someone who wants to fly and is a pilot in the Air Force is to keep flying. And George Bud Day had that struggle all along. But no matter what assignment he was given, you know, he was given an assignment as an ROTC guy, you know, the head of a detachment at a college. He was given an assignment with a wing that was just falling apart. And he had all these assignments that he wasn't always able to fly, but every assignment that he took, the thing flourished, you know. The college where he led the ROTC detachment, enrollment went way up, and the discipline was there, probably because the Marine in him. You know, when he took a, a wing, I think it was in New York, but just um, an aircraft group that was not that healthy and really not ready for for action, he made them ready for action. Just everywhere he went, he had an excellence about him that was incredible. So the Vietnam conflict starts, and uh, Bud Day is, I think he's, if he hasn't, if he's not a colonel yet, he may be a major, and he's just a go-getter, risk-taker. He's the one guy in the Air Force who at this point has survived um, an ejection without a parachute. He, um, earlier on in his career, you know, the whole fighter jet thing uh, is just was really experimental as we were figuring out how to, how to make the thing work. So one time, he was low to the ground. I can't, I can't remember whether he was landing or taking off, but he had to eject. His, his uh, plane went on fire because they would do that a lot when we were first making fighter jets. His plane 
is in, in, engulfed in flames. He has to eject, but the chute doesn't work. So I haven't figured out that part. So he's strapped to his seat, and he falls to the ground. He breaks his body in multiple places, and he survives. You know, the doctor said, you're never going to fly again. But just the sheer will of this man, he, he uh, recuperates and uh, is back to flying. And then um, back on to Vietnam, starts the Vietnam conflict. And, of course, his group is just one of the best groups out there. They go out every day doing their runs, and they're just... Um, dropping their ordnance from their kind of fighter bomber. I forget what it is. Some of you Air Force guys might know. Maybe it's an F-4. I can't remember. But he's doing his deal, and he gets shot down. And George Day is shot down, and uh, a group of teenage North Vietnamese armed with, you know, M-16s, or no, they'd have AK-47s, finds him and brings him to their superiors. And uh, Colonel Bud Day goes through some of the most horrendous torture you and I could ever imagine. And uh, like John McCain... You know, John McCain uh, has problems with his arms because the same kind of torture was used on John McCain as was on Bud Day. In fact, later, they would become roommates at what is called the Hanoi Hilton. You know, this, this, uh, uh, this prison in, in Hanoi where all the American POWs were kept. So anyways, George Day, Bud Day is captured. And uh, I mean, he is tortured like nobody's business. And he actually manages to escape. He gets himself out of this... POW camp. He's making his way towards the DMZ, right, that line between North and South Vietnam. He is around U.S. Marines. He knows they're kind of around, and and he gets so close. But what happens is he actually gets recaptured. He was was this close to his his, uh, freedom, and he gets recaptured by the North Vietnamese. And it's at that point where he, uh, you know, that's a... uh, that's pretty offensive to the, the guy who was in charge of the little torture place where he was. The fact that he escaped from him, well, that made him pretty upset. So that's how Bud Day gets end, ends up being sent to, the again, the Hanoi Hilton, this place, this prison camp for POWs. And I think he must have spent five years there. And during those five years, one of his roommates was John McCain. And, um, I mean, um, I just can't, I mean, it's the kind of thing, when I was reading it, although it was a page turner, I'm, I'm kind of like, oh, that's sick. But then I'd put it down and I'd read it again. That's sick. I just because, just reading the, the severity, the torture, and you just, you just really can't, um, it, it is a, it's stomach turning because of what he went through. And um, George Day, eventually, you know, it's um, it was early 70s when um, kind of we figured out, hey, we still got POWs there and we finally get them home. And so George Day is among others that are brought home. And, of course, um, a hero's welcome for him, but our country was really divided. Um, but this guy is just cut from a different cloth, as I've said. And he goes on, and he, um, because of politics in the Air Force, he ends up not being brought up to a general. There's just basically a guy in the Pentagon who just doesn't like him and doesn't like a lot of the POWs because they got such a chip on their shoulder, you know. Um, the thing that probably strikes me the most, and forgive me, I'm a little bit rambly, uh, because I'm, I'm just so affected by the book emotionally. I'm not doing a good job putting it back together. But um, the thing that struck me the most is that he would not let down on the code of conduct. And what that was was after Korea, because so many soldiers had kind of given up information and uh, uh, they didn't do a good job of kind of keeping American secrets um, secret, they wrote this code of conduct. So going to Vietnam, and that code was, you know, you are only to give your serial number and rank, and that's all you need to do, and, um, uh, and nothing else. And while other men um, who were in the Hanoi Hilton gave stuff up, and they would get freed, 
They would get let go when they satisfied their captor's quest for information. But Bud Day and John McCain and a handful of others would not back down. And that's what totally gets me. Because I just think under that level of pain and under the psychological torture, I mean day in and day out of being physically tortured in ways that I don't want to describe, the fact that he wouldn't give up. He didn't. And so, of course, he comes home and um, gets the Medal of Honor. And uh, he's, he has some other battles that he's fought since then as a lawyer. For some of you um, who are in the military, who are thinking of being in the military, the whole health care thing that military people get, I, I forget, it's, I think it's, um, what's it called, TRICARE or TRI-whatever, that, that whole health care thing exists because George Day fought the U.S. government when the government said, hey, we're not going to pay for health care anymore for our, for our soldiers. And he said, wait a second, when I enlisted in World War II, the promise was free health care for life. And as a lawyer, he brought that to court and, um, and fought. And it's kind of a compromise that has come as a result. But he's still got fight in him. And the guy must be hitting 90 now. Anyways, I've gone on probably too long. But the point is, <laughs> this guy just blows me away. He's a hero. And I'm like, you know, God was doing something in me as I was reading this. And I just think, if this man basically laid down his life, let himself be turned into human hamburger meat because of a code of conduct, how much more should I be, have the same willingness for the sake of Jesus, my King and my Lord? Do you know what I'm saying? This guy's a hero. So, what about you? I had a good read on my sabbatical. I found another hero. What about you? When you just answered, when you met with your someone here, who did you say was a hero of yours? Or, you know, if it's, if it's not a superhero, is there someone in real life who is a hero to you? Who comes to mind? Who comes to mind? There we go. Thanks, Steve. Okay. There we go. Because he's a believer. Awesome. Thank, thank you, Steve. Wait, and say, say the name again because I'm not familiar. Jamie Madrox. What does he do? Okay. Okay. All right. So you got to show me some lyrics. We'll, we'll chit-chat about them. Good. <clears throat> so maybe like Steve, you got someone in mind. Well, the scriptures indicate that we were actually designed to... to uh, well, I, I want to be careful with my words here, but we were designed to worship heroes. You know, the scripture indicates we were designed to be drawn to heroes. But just like any um, capacity or anything designed by God, it's subject to corruption and degradation. So I just want to follow through the scriptures a little bit today. And, um, and we're saying, hey, God, capture again our worship. We have, we have a need for a hero, and um, Lord, the Lord wants to fulfill it. And let's watch how he does it. Okay, so start with me in Exodus. I want to paint the picture here of the fact that we were made to worship heroes. We're designed for hero worship, but it just gets a little messed up from time to time. So God is making his covenant with people, and he says, okay, I'm going to give you 10 things. You're going to make your life a lot happier, right? And the first one, I'm thinking Exodus 20, right? He says, you shouldn't have any other gods before me. And in my mind, I think that would be enough. Like, that's a that's a good enough commandment. Let's move on to don't use the Lord's name in vain, number three. Let's move on to honor the Sabbath, four. But no, God has to kind of expand on one because he knows our hearts and he has to put in this second commandment. And what is it? It says, you shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not make for yourself an idol. 
And he says, why? He says, hey, because I'm a jealous God. He says, don't make an image out of anything in heaven, on the earth, in the waters below. Just don't do that. And he says, why? Because I'm a jealous God. Okay, don't make for yourself an image. That's Exodus 20. And as Exodus continues unfolding, it's God speaking not only these Ten Commandments, but He's speaking all, a bunch of other things to Moses about how He wants the community to be. And then finally in Exodus 32, we get like the camera pans. We were with Moses on the mountain, and he's getting all the glory of God and the commands, including the one I just mentioned. We pan to down on the side of the mountain, and what is going on there? Ironically, Exodus 32, what's going on? Let's look at it. I'll start in verse 1. It says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, right, his brother, and said, Hey, let's make gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Right? Here's your hero. They had just had a most heroic thing happen. God himself had delivered them. He had parted the Red Sea, brought them through it, and then had the Red Sea go over the armies. I mean, come on. There's a hero. God had been the hero to Israel just a little bit before. And so they have that longing to worship There's this hero worship thing in them. And when Moses and kind of the authority of God isn't there anymore, what do they do? I mean, they take a calf and say, let's worship this thing. Okay, are you you following with me? I'm I'm just trying to make the case that I think we were made to hero worship. And I see we we have it here in Exodus so well. Okay? Now, come with me to the Psalms now. So this is going to be a few hundred years later. Someone is reflecting on what happened at the mountain there. A poet is saying, Hey, let me kind of express this artistically. What happened when Moses was getting the Ten Commandments, but our, our guys on the ground were starting to worship calves instead of God. This is what happened. And he says it like this in Psalm 106. I'm going to start in verse 19. He says, They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. And it's verse 20 that I want us to focus on. It says, Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox or a bull that eats grass. I mean, can you hear the sarcasm there? I don't know if you're getting it, but the, the poet's just like, hello, look at this. They exchanged their glory, and in NIV, they capitalized the G, and we'll talk about that in a second, for the image of an ox that eats grass. You know, the poet's kind of saying, hello, you, this is kind of dumb, 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 dumb. Okay, it says, they forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonders the land of Ham, in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea, miracles in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. In other words, they forgot all the awesome things that God had done, and they exchanged their glory. Now, I want to I sit on this for a second, because I feel like knowing this just gives us a little insight even into our own hearts, and this idea of exchanging their glory. Well, and this is where Hebrew helps us a little bit. The word for glory is kavad. And when kavad is used in the Old Testament, it's used both of men and of God. And when it's used of God, it means glory. It can mean presence, 
For example, if a, little, a few uh, chapters earlier in Exodus, you know, Moses is crying out, God, I need your presence to go with me. He was saying, God, I need your glory to go with me. And Moses says, I will show you my, excuse me, God says, I'll show you my glory. God says, my presence will go with you. Well, presence and glory, it's all that same word. It's kavad, right? So what is the glory of God? It's his presence. It's himself. It's him. What's the glory of man? I think it's a really similar thing. Because in, again, in Exodus, I think it's Exodus 45, another place where we see kavod is when Joseph says, you've got to remember the Joseph story. Joseph, uh, um, he's become number two in Egypt. His brothers have come and found him and they've revealed each other to one another. And Joseph says, hey guys, go back and tell my father all the honor that I have now. And tell him to come back. That word honor is the same word, it's kavod. In other words, tell them about all my glory. I'm number two in Egypt. I'm the man. You know, and God's done this, and he's done it for his purposes. It's not about me. It's about God. And he's saying that word honor is kavod. Again, um, look at all the, look at what God has done. Um, look at the honor. Look at the glory. Look at the presence that God's given me. So what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at is I think the poet in Psalm 106 purposely is a little bit ambiguous. And he says, they exchanged their glory for that of a a cow. You know, in other words, they exchanged their glory. NIV capitalizes the G and and it kind of indicates like they exchanged God. Their glory was God himself, right? But I would say also they exchanged their glory. It's like they gave a part of themselves. They gave a part of their sense of self away by worshiping this calf, which is what we do when our hero worship is out of bounds or inappropriate. Are you following me? It's like there's something about us giving our glory away um, that is what is most damaging to us. Okay, let's fast forward a few hundred years more. And the Apostle Paul, church planter, picks up this very thing. And I know as a, as a studied Jew, he would have known Psalm 106 so well. And he picks it up and he takes up this theme. And remember in the book of Romans, what is Paul trying to do? Paul is writing to a group of believers that he does not know. He hasn't met yet. And in so doing, he kind of puts forth his greatest theological treaties that we have. And he kind of, A to Z, here's God and the gospel and Jesus. And he's got to start out with (laughs) life as it is, right? He starts out with this is how it is and this is why it is how it is. He's got to start out with the brokenness of this world and the fallness of creation. So he starts in Romans 1 and he says this. I'm, I'm in verse 21. And by the way, if you wanted to put your thumb somewhere today, you should just put it in John 1 because that's where we're going to land. should have told you that earlier. You don't have to do all this flipping. I know I'm, I'm breaking some preaching rules about having us go through all these scriptures. We're going to land on John 1, but just enjoy the tour of the Bible today. Thank you, Neil, for the tour of the Bible. <clears throat> Romans 1, 21. Paul's explaining why is the world the way it is. He says this, so broken, so messed up. Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, this is where it gets good, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And uh, following in 24, therefore God gave them over 
in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. You know, it's one of the expressions of how things got really broken. And again, verse 25 is, is key for us. It says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. The problem is this exchange of glory. We exchange God. We exchange our gift, our, the kind of who God has made us to be for other things, for lesser things, oftentimes for foolish things. And that's the problem. That's the issue. And so when we talk about needing a hero, and just think about, gosh, it's been kind of an action-packed summer. We had um, Green Lantern, Captain America. Anyone seen that yet? A um, few others out there. What else? What are other hero movies this summer? Help me out. Kung Fu Panda 2. That's a good one. I'm actually really excited to see that. I, I saw the first one. <clears throat> what else? You guys go to the movies. Even though I told you you shouldn't, you should be sharing the gospel instead. But I know you still do. I still do. So what are, what are we seeing? What are the other hero movies? Help me out. I feel like there's more. X-Men. Okay. What is it? I sorry, I can't. Larry Boy Hero. Yes, we all need a veggie hero. Everyone needs a veggie hero. Cool. Any others? Cars 2. We saw that on sabbatical. It's wonderful. My son loved it. He paid attention for a good 45 minutes. It's good. We just needed air conditioning. It's Tucson, Arizona. It was like 110 degrees, so we saw that. Harry Potter. He's kind of epic. Right on. Thank you, Matt. He's in the land of epic heroes. Say it again. I started in. Oh, yeah, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, right? New, yep, right on. The, the, the saga continues. Right? We're, we're just designed for it. And again, the point here, I'm not, we're not to get condemned about these movies. That's not the point. I'm not trying to bring a religious thing. But I'm just trying to look at our hearts and, um, and how we're designed. So, you know where I'm headed. There's one hero we're meant to worship. We have a hero of all heroes. But there's something about the church needing to recapture it and actually believe it, believe it and, and, and live it. And so I want to land at John because I feel like in John, I'm talking about the book of John, John 1. Remember that the disciple John was the one, he was really young. I think tradition says that he might have been the youngest of the of the disciples, maybe a teenager even, maybe, maybe an older teen, when Jesus called him to follow him. And um, of course, John was the one, John was able to sell, save himself. He was so secure, he was able to say, hey, I'm the one who Jesus loved. <laughs> Sometimes we think it's a little arrogant, but I think he was just really secure in the fact that Jesus dug him, you know? They were tight. They had a, there was an affection going on between Jesus and John that was totally cool and um, was powerful. So years later, John is reflecting on this. And what does he say? He pens these words. I'm going to just bounce around here. John 1, maybe 1 through 4, and then on to 14. John is reflecting on his hero, his superhero that he met. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Right? This guy really is a superhero. He's out of this world. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So that's a really important part. I don't want to skip over that. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 3, Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. 
In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And then he goes on to 14, and this is what I want to hang out on a little bit. The Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. Of course, he's speaking of Jesus. And he says this, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when I read those words, I'm just imagining what was John thinking? Like as he wrote, I've seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten. You know, the, uh, the NIV says the one and only, but the kind of closer to the real translation is the glory of the begotten, the only begotten, the only son of God. And I just want to be in John's brain. And I want to imagine the, the kind of, um, again, I'm thinking movie, I'm thinking cinematograph- cinematographically here, like the shots that went through his mind. Did he envision the Magi coming to worship Jesus at that first time? Did he envision when Jesus was on the Sermon on the Mount and after he gave that message, the people were amazed because of the authority Jesus spoke with and he was saying radical things, you know? Did it go through his mind when, um, when, when Jesus came and walked on the water? They had, Jesus had sent them out earlier. Hey, you guys go ahead. There in the night, night watch, almost morning actually, in the boat and Jesus comes up on the water Peter says, hey, can I walk on water too? Jesus says, yeah, come on out here. He falters a little and they both get in the boat and it says there that they worshipped him. John was there when they worshipped him because Jesus had shown up walking on water and asked Peter to do the same. Did it go through John's mind the time when he raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead and he did the same for Lazarus? I mean, he saw these people raised from the dead. He saw people who struggled with demons delivered. Are the times that Jesus silenced the Pharisees because he was so wise, you know, and he had the right word from him, and he silenced the guys that usually had all the power in the given situations. Were these things that were going through John's mind when he said, I've seen the glory of the one and only. This is my hero. Here's my hero. This is what he did. It says that they worshipped him after he was resurrected and he gave them the great commission, right? Matthew 28, 18, 19, 20, go into all the world. Go into all the nations, share the gospel, baptize them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus, obey all that I've commanded you. It says they worshiped him. Jesus had silenced even Pilate. I remember that one too. When Pilate was asking Jesus, hey, do you have any comment to the, the charges that you're being indicted with? It says Jesus was absolutely silent. And it says, Pilate was amazed. All these things are going through, perhaps, John's mind as he's writing. I've seen the glory of the one and only. I've seen the glory of the one and only. Have you? Have I? Has the church? Have we forgotten the glory of the one and only? Are we so inundated by the hero worship of our culture that we're just out of balance? And I have to say, that's the picture that God gave me as I was preparing for the message. The picture that God gave me was a picture of a ship that was listing. Where's Elizabeth? Is that the correct term? Listing? Okay. Use my nautical term there. A ship that's listing. Now, it wasn't totally capsized. And I know some of us might be capsized. Like I'm thinking, if you're, you know, if you are just um, in your, up to your eyeballs with porn, 
if you are drugs or, or alcohol addicted, or if you are, you know, some of you may have totally capsized and uh, you've totally exchanged your glory for, you know, you've, you've exchanged the glory of God. You're just, there's no human dignity kind of left because you're so given over to other stuff. Well, then you're capsized and God's got help for you. But I think the picture of the church in general is a church that is listing. And what I mean is that we are just a little bit gray. There's a little bit too much gray. We, in different ways, we've exchanged the glory of God for lesser things. And God wants to come back and be the number one. He wants to be our hero. He wants to be the all in all. I know it sounds elementary and it sounds basic, but honestly, Christianity, right, is very basic, you know? We just get better at doing the basics all the time. And I feel like God's giving us an opportunity today to right the ship. And so that's kind of my question for us today is, hey, where are you listing? In what ways have you exchanged the glory of God in your own soul for the glory of something else? How's that happening? Just let the Holy Spirit point that out to you. Where's the hero worship gotten out of bounds? How's it manifesting? How's that manifesting in your life? Say, Lord, show me. Even right now, Lord, we just pray. Holy Spirit, show us. Where are we listing? Where are we settling for less? Where are we not acknowledging you as hero of all heroes? But our worship has gone out to other people, places, things, other ideas. Holy Spirit, we need you. Right our ship, we pray. Thank you, Lord. And this is why I have to explain a reason why this is of great interest to me. It's not just for your mental health or my mental health, although that is important. Honestly, you'll find yourself, as we get in line with God's Word, as we obey commandments 1 and 2, have all, God is the one and only, don't have any other image you know, set up. As we start to obey those, we will get more mentally healthy. That's the great news because God designed us and he gave us the plan and that's wonderful. But you know what also is of great interest to me? Because God has got a God-sized mission for us. He has a heroic mission for us as a church. And as I read the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, I watch Jesus and I see Jesus either limited or allowed according to the faith around him. When there was great faith, he was able to be the hero. And be incredibly heroic. But like in his hometown, it says he wasn't able to do very many miracles because of their lack of faith. And so my concern for us as a church is this. We're, We're getting ready to get into fall. And God's got some mandates on us. You know, our mandates are, we see them in our in our vision and values. We're a haven for the broken, we're a launch to the nations. And um Like I mentioned either last week or two weeks ago, there in a town of 40,000, there's 36,000 people who aren't showing up at church or synagogue. That's of grave concern to me. We have a mission, and that's just Beverly, not even talking about the rest of the North Shore. We've got a mission to see the church be a haven for the broken. There are people who are hurting and broken out there. They don't know that there's hope in Jesus. They don't know Jesus the hero. And part of the reason they don't know is because we're not reflecting it. Because, you know, we have exchanged the glory. We need to get back the glory of God so we can share that out. Do you know what I'm saying? 
We've got a mandate on our church. We've got a mandate to be a launch to the nations. Honestly, I feel like God's given me a mandate to see New England super saturated with church plant pastors. I believe that one of the harbor's destinies here is to super saturate New England with multiplying churches. How can we do it if our ship's listening? If we've exchanged the glory of God for some other lesser thing, we can't. We've got a mandate. That mandate is to be launched to the nations also. God wants to reproduce the life-giving community that's happening in this church to Mali, to Moldova, to Italy, to Spain, to Algeria. We've got a mandate there. It's going to take mature people to do it. It's going to take mature teams. Now, we've got all the DNA in place. The question is, are we going to follow through? The people of Israel, they had met with God, but somehow things got darkened and they exchanged the glory of God for something else. The same, we're at the same kind of precipice. Do you know what I'm saying? Jenna, come on up. Let's get the worship team up here. So that's why this matters. I guess I just want to say the whole exchanging glory thing, the whole, you know, making sure Jesus is the hero he needs to be in our lives and he is, it's not just about you. It's about us. It's about this church fulfilling its mandate and the church, capital C, fulfilling its mandate here. Because hero God is asking us to do heroic things. The only way we can do it is if we get right. Amen? All right, why don't you guys stand up?